0: At this moment, uh, those who regularly attend are so accustomed to be saying, take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to a particular passage of Scripture that is for our consideration. I'm going to say that in just a few moments, but I'm going to say one more time this morning, and this is not to alarm those playing the instruments. You can stay where you are. I want you to take your hymnal again. Would you take your hymnal for just a moment? And turn with me to the hymn found on page 93. Hymn number 93. This, of course, is one of the greatest of all the Christmas carols through the centuries of time, I believe. And I say that because, as I've pointed out in recent weeks, we've looked one way or another and have sung This particular carol, written, of course, by Charles Wesley in the 1700s. What makes this a weighty and wonderful hymn to sing, and uh, not just at Christmas time, if we were to sing it all year, is that it is so full of very exacting biblical truth. The truth of God's word is what inspired the putting together of these lyrics by that prolific hymn writer, Charles Wesley. And in previous weeks, I talked about him. I talked about how many hymns unbelievably he's written in his lifetime, how better known, uh, lesser known he is than his brother, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist church movement. But Charles Wesley has given a great gift to the church in all of his hymns. But I think at this time of the year, one can't go through the season without being uh, benefited by the biblical truth. Actually, deep doctrinal theological truth. Wesley was inspired to write these words. On the first Sunday that we began to consider various portions of scripture around this hymn, We were, of course, at the first verse. See what it says. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. Now, the next phrase is what we focused on for our whole time of study that first week. God and sinners reconcile. And we searched the scriptures and spoke about the wonderful doctrine in the Bible, the teaching on this subject, the doctrine of reconciliation. And, of course, the main point of what we noticed, in Wesley has it right, he puts God's name first. If there was ever to be any setting right between sinners and God, we said God himself must be the one who does the reconciling and so wesley rightly points out it is god and sinners reconciled because he has come with mercy mild and then last lord's day of course we were at the second verse christ by highest heaven adored christ the everlasting lord late in time behold him come and then the doctrine of uh, The virgin birth, offspring of the virgin's womb. But we focused on this next phrase last Lord's Day. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Uh, If anyone asks me, do I have a favorite sermon I ever had to preach? Uh, That came very close at the top of my list. I just love talking to you folks and anyone else who will hear me about this wondrous mystery that Jesus is God. And when he came more than 2,000 years ago through the portals of a virgin's womb, it's it's just mind-blowing, heart-expanding, soul-filled wonder, veiled in flesh, but nevertheless, true God as well as true man. And so Wesley wrote right after that phrase, Hail the incarnate deity, God in the flesh. This is the third, there will be one more after Christmas, if the Lord tarries. I'm still around. Uh, the last Lord's Day of this month of December, next week, uh, we'll be looking at yet another verse. You see only three verses in our hymnal, I believe. We're at Wesley's original draft for Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there's seven whole verses. And sometimes I think it's a shame we don't take a deep breath and try to sing all seven, but you can't find all seven in most hymnals. We have only three in our church hymnal. But let's look at that third verse. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. The phrase that we'll focus upon in these next moments together is the next one. Mild he lays His glory by. There's a wonderfully deep truth there, which you'll see, I think, in just a moment when we search the scriptures. He was born that man no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us a second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So, now. It's time to take your Bibles. We don't preach hymns. We preach the word of God, even though this Christmas season we've been using that uh, hymn to set the theme for each of our four sermons at Christmas time. I'm asking you to take your Bible then and turn with me to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two. You'll find that on page 1175 in the church Bible. Page 1175 in the Church Bible, or your own Bible, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, I would like to take up the reading of the text at verse 5 and read through to verse 11. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5 through verse 11. Have this attitude in yourselves... Which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, let's keep in mind Wesley's wonderful Bible-based lyrics and this particular text, and I'll simply begin to make some observations and have you follow along with me. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, is what Wesley writes, and he got it from the Bible. We like to often quote Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, this time of the year. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders... His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. What's next? Prince of Peace. Wesley renders it Hail the heaven born Prince of Peace. He is that. Always was. Came to earth and is. The king who lived, and at age 33, was put to death, though in another sense he would say, No man takes my life from me, I lay it down willingly. Three days later, he would rise again. Not at that point is he crowned king, he was born the king that Isaiah prophesied there. In chapter 9, he ascended back to the throne of his father. He has promised to come again. And if ever there seemed a time to proclaim with great hope for all of us who believe in him, the Prince of Peace, we want to say on certain seasons and times and events, do we not? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Or as Longfellow put it, there is No peace on earth. But the answer to the problems that still persist in this world, the violence, the hatred, the heartbreak, the you name it. I could turn you to the latter pages of the New Testament. And basically the news is that in the last days, if you think it's bad now, it is but it's going to get worse. Not so that we will fear so much as we should gather greater hope and anticipation and faith. Folks, that babe born in a manger more than 2,000 years ago predicted here in this beautiful set. And the cross which is now empty, that one, the same Jesus, The one who at a point in time was a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes is coming again. And we'll leave it to CNN and Fox and people labeled experts on sociological and psychological uh, to discuss and be the talking heads. Some of them bring ideas that may help us endure the night of our remaining days here in a fallen world, I don't know. But listen, you and I know our eyes have been opened. We have beheld the king of glory. We have the promise of him coming again. The answer will not be found out of the Oval Office in Washington, D.C. or in the halls of Congress. The sociologists will not come up with a final formula to protect all the little children in all the classrooms all across America. The psychologist can listen to his talk all day long, but he'll never be able to pierce in to see that the real problem is that the heart of man is fallen and it is deceitful and it is desperately wicked. We will perhaps, no doubt, see increasing numbers of the kinds of outbreak of pure evil that we have had to endure in these days. But Jesus, this heaven-born Prince of Peace, when he comes, it will not be such a lowly Advent. It will not be meek and mild baby Jesus. The book of Revelation uses symbolic language, I believe, to stir our minds to think about how his second coming will occur. This captain of our faith, this Lord Sadeoth, this this leader of all the armies of heaven on a white horse, charging through the atmosphere of our world. It's at that point, it's at that point, justice will be done and every wrong will be righted. His final act as the Prince of Peace that He was when He was born will be to return. There will be judgment on the one hand and incredible mercy afforded on the other because He came by way of the cross. All of His enemies... Meaning all of the enemies of God's people will be brought low and become the footstool as he sits upon his throne and reigns forever and ever. Now, the second thing that Wesley says, but our passage here in Philippians also details, is Wesley says, Hail the Son of Righteousness. He got that from, you see, the very last pages of the Old Testament were all the prophecies about the coming of Jesus. Malachi two, last chapter of the Bible, after which we have 400 years of silence. There is no God-sent prophet in the world for, well, we Americans can relate, two bicentennials of time. I can still remember the bicentennial of nineteen seventy-six. I was in Philadelphia. I was in front of Independence Hall in July of nineteen seventy-six. Two hundred years. Well, there were four hundred years. And not a word was uttered or came down from heaven until John the Baptist. In the in the same genre as Elijah, you remember, comes. Malachi talks about that and talks about the Messiah who will come. Here's what he writes, Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, he speaks for God, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And it's about joy. He said, you will go forth and skip about like calves from The stall. I won't take the time to consider some of the providential irony of that last book of the Old Testament talking about a manger scene and calves being turned out in the morning sun to rejoice in their breakfast and all that God provided in the fields of green. But this son of righteousness is none other than Jesus Christ, and he comes out of the barn. And those he has created will dance with joy. Those whose sins will be forgiven. Or again, as Wesley puts it, born that man no more may die. Meaning that judgment for the redeemed of God, judgment for God's people will be laid aside. There will therefore now be no condemnation for those that are in Christ. You want to make sure, don't you, that you're in Christ because Jesus is coming again for a day of reckoning and of judgment. But this man was born as well, that man himself, those who would put faith, man, woman, boy and girl, puts faith in Jesus Christ. No more death. Born, he says, to raise the sons, of Earth, Wesley recognized that the universal condition of every offspring of our first parents Adam and Eve is that we are desperately fallen people born to raise the sons of earth and then the punchline is it not born to give them second birth do you need to know where to search the scriptures to Wonder where Wesley was reading that day, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the one who spoke those words to Nicodemus would be the author of that very life, which Nicodemus and every other sinner would need, born to give them second birth. Let's think about that birth scene with me for just a few minutes. After all, the, the manger and, and the images we have in our minds, some people argue that we probably shouldn't have uh, graven images like this, but uh, I, I think that's kind of an extreme and almost legalistic view of certain portions of Scripture. But if this offends anyone, I'm sorry that you're offended. When I look at it, what it does for me is help my sanctified imagination go back to the actual event might very well have been something like this. Well, of course, except for the wise men, they didn't come till much later. But the story's kind of brought together, if you will, in a work of art. But we think about the reality of it. We think about the fact that it really was in a humble place. The manger, most scholars would say, was probably a cattle stall. And in which there may well have been a feeding trough. So in the manger, that is in that animal's stall, uh, was a feeding trough. And when she wrapped the baby in, in those clothes, swaddling clothes, and she, she may very well have laid it right there conveniently in the feeding trough. I think another incredible fact about all of that in the scriptures again, the wonder of, Of Christmas is that 800 years before the birth of Christ. 800. We talked about 400 years of silence. We know how long a bicentennial can be. 800 years before Mary, the Virgin, brought forth this Prince of Peace. Here's what the old prophet. Micah wrote in chapter 5 and verse 2 of his prophecy. But as for you, Bethlehem. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Isn't this just like God? To choose a typical podunk kind of village from you, one will go forth for me to be king, ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That first week we considered reconciliation, God and sinners reconciled. Last week we considered the purpose of it, the incarnation. Purpose was that Godhead would be veiled in flesh. And now we have this phrase, mild he lays His glory by. This is a part of the Christmas story that should be meditated upon. It was wonder enough to say last Lord's Day, this is actually God contained in flesh. And even more, what that took was for God in Christ, in the body of a baby, becoming a baby would have to lay down something of his eternal glory. It's what this Philippians 2 passage is all about, as you'll see in a moment. But stay with me. I, uh, I, I want to take Wesley's words because I think he captures something we might otherwise miss. When he says mild, he, this God in the flesh, lays his glory by. Folks, if it hadn't been a mild laying aside of God's own glory because Jesus was God, the glory that would have been more fully present, what can I say? We'd have a story, I think, about roast lamb and shepherd stew. Because when the glory of God is revealed, so often, especially under the Old Covenant, It is light for sure. It is glory for sure. But it comes with such fierce, even purifying and destructive power. Wesley sees something here, not only of God being contained in flesh, that's wonder enough, but that God could enter this world of sin and not come and destroy it, even as an infant, mild, he lays his glory by and takes up an identity with the rest of us who are men and women only of flesh. I've enjoyed often the writings of Max Licato. Some of you I know have mentioned him to me, and you enjoy his writings. I think. One of the good things he's done for us in recent years is when he writes at Christmas time and, and he, he gets us in touch with the earthiness of what it meant for God to lay his full glory aside to contain it within the body of a baby in a manger. He wrote this, the stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard, the hay scarce. Cobwebs cling to the ceiling and a mouse scurries across the dirt floor. A more lowly place of birth could not exist. He looks like anything but a king. Lucado writes, his face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby. And he is absolutely dependent upon this teenage girl, Mary, for his well-being. Lays his glory by. This is majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth. Of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager and in the presence of a carpenter. She touches the face of the infant God. How long was his journey? This baby had overlooked the universe. These rags keeping him warm were the robes of eternity now. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. And worshiping angels had been replaced with a kind of dumbfounded, bewildered looking shepherds. Meanwhile, the city hums. The merchants are unaware that God has even visited The planet. The innkeeper would never believe that he had just sent God into the cold. And the people would scoff at anyone who told them that the Messiah lay in the arms of this girl on the outskirts of their village. They were all too busy to consider such a possibility. Those who missed His Majesty's arrival that night missed it. Not because, by the way, of evil acts or malice. No, they missed it because they simply weren't looking. And then Locato says, rather convictingly, little has changed in the last 2,000 years. Well, the biblical text for all of this Grimy, earthly, human scene is the scriptures that we just read a few minutes ago there in Philippians 2. What we have in this portion of God's word is a supreme condescension. I see in the Christmas story, and as it's even reflected here in Philippians 2, you can't get around this, both the heights and the Depths of Christmas. Measure the span. From a throne of eternal glory. Transcendence. Infinite, transcendent God. Condescending. How low. The word the scriptures use, interestingly enough, is humility. Our text says that Jesus humbled himself in this mission. And by the way, the lowest low was not to be born in a barn. The lowest of his experiences in his condescension was to be stripped naked as an adult man and hung on a cross before a gaping crowd. Even death on a cross, the text says. That word, humility, actually connects with the word human. Maybe we would uh, do well to remember that when God calls us his people to be the humble ones among the earth, all he's really saying is, I'll just remind you of who you actually are. You are just human. In fact, you can't get much lower than dirt. The earth. Go back to Genesis. Genesis. What's our origins? We did not come from the throne of eternal glory. Jesus did. We came from the earth. God formed and shaped and breathed into the nostrils of that clay figure on that day of creation. It was then and only then that this human, humus is the same root word. Humus, as you know, not hummus, I like that, but humus is dirt. The ground. And this is why Paul, writing in Philippians, uses another Greek word. Some of you are familiar with it at Christmas time, especially. The, the Greek word kenosis. The one word that is, is telling us that it had to take something for the eternal, transcendent Lord of glory to become human, to be made like the rest of us. Of the earth. He emptied himself. Now it's here that we have any number of theologians get into heated debates. What does kenosis mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Are we to conclude then that after that he was less God and maybe more man? Or, or did he empty himself in the sense that now he is only another man? I mentioned last week you could go across the street from our church right into the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah Witnesses, and they'll tell you that about Jesus. He was a great guy. He was a son of God, but he wasn't the son of God. He was not God come in the flesh. But Jesus is beloved. In his earthly ministry, his divine power and his authority, as well as his glory, we saw a bit of it revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it was not on display. Always under the direction of the Father and the Holy Spirit is how the scriptures tell us Jesus traveled this earth's sod for 33 years. He did not come, though he was God, and choose to exercise his deity. He was wholly reliant on the prayers he prayed to his Father. And as you read through the Gospels, the direct intervention and help of the Holy Spirit. The Godhead itself overseeing the second person of the Trinity. We read such things as, for example, how Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, even as he talked to them. That was a little flash of light into the fact of who he really was. Human beings don't walk on water. Well, maybe Peter would argue the point, but he eventually sank. The Lord Jesus had bursts of glory along the way that more than sufficiently proved who he was, and still the people did not believe. but he laid it all aside. he came down i, I uh, as a kid i I remember uh, one of my favorite authors as a young man was Mark Twain, maybe you too, who could forget Huckleberry Finn and And uh, all of that kind of thing. I think one of the greatest stories Mark Twain ever wrote is one called The Prince and the Pauper. How the son of Henry VIII found a a waif on the street that looked a lot like him and they traded clothes. And the king's son now left the security and the comforts and the wonders of the palace with his father, the king, and trades places, the prince and the pauper. And he takes the pauper's place and he goes out into the world and then, of course, has all the kind of adventures that Mark Twain was so good at coming up with. There's a little of that, you see, a change of clothes, actually even a change of identity. When I read that this one was prophesied as being marred beyond recognition, I know why. When the New Testament explains that in his own body, he bore our sins all the way to the cross. This man of sorrows. He became the pauper, even though he was actually the king, so that we could take up our own residence. Jesus, the servant. Never forget, it's God. But Jesus, the servant, washing dirty feet. Jesus, the healer, of course, but not afraid to touch lepers. Not afraid to to engage prostitutes and offer them cleansing and new life. And of course, he's Jesus, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He's Jesus, the God of the universe, but now he has flesh that will tear, hands and feet that can be pierced. In other words, God becoming man, laying aside that glory, could become one with us in our humanity. And for the first time, God himself had veins it could bleed because everything else was just a picture leading up to that all the blood of bulls and goats and sheep could never atone the scriptures conclude they were all looking forward to just this one lamb of God who would come so when you think about what's this year's best gift it's always the same if you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear and your heart has been open to who he really is and what he gave up, you are among the many who have every cause for praising God on high. He sent his one and only son who laid aside his own glory, emptied himself, as it were, did not put into use Did not destroy the world, which I mentioned he could have even by his presence as an infant, but waits to be mercy, waits waits to be merciful. You know, the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet, and even though there's times when our hearts especially yearn and we cry with the saints of old, Even so, come quickly, Lord. Or with the psalmist who reaches down pretty deep on a certain day and says, How long? How long, O Lord? The scriptures explain that he's waiting in patience and with mercy for the very next person living in some podunk town like Bethlehem to put childlike faith and trust in who he really was and who... He really is. He came down from His glory. And when He did, deity became something tangible. The Spirit of God, in a certain sense, the third person of the Trinity, actually became visible. They are one. Love became very personal. Peace became possible, grace became feasible, mercy became available. Truth became verifiable, glory became undeniable, sin sin became forgivable. Death became defeatable. Sorrow became replaceable. Victory became obtainable. Heaven became accessible. Life became livable. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I also like this one, and Satan became miserable. And all because he came down from his glory. This wonderful, incredible indescribable gift, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what you and I celebrate this Christmas in the year of our Lord, 2012.